All right, we are in Acts chapter 2. Let us begin in verse 33. Let's read our text together. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you have crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about nearly about 3,000 souls. Twenty years ago, this church began with, out of what we believe to be necessity. For we were gathered as a Bible study during the week. And as we began to notice the people coming to the Bible study, none of them had a home church. None of them had a church in which they attended on Sunday mornings. And out of that Bible study, God began to move and started to show and demonstrate that he was in, into making this a church body here in this area. But yet when we started, we wanted to do things the way God would have us to do them. We knew that there were many uh, very effective methodologies that the world had created to have, quote-unquote, a successful church. We didn't want to be a successful church in the world's eyes. We wanted to be a healthy church in God's eyes. And therefore, we turn to the second chapter of Acts, where we see the church born for the very first time. And we started to conclude and uh, derive some principles for us to base our church upon. And the first thing we saw in the first few verses of chapter 2 is that we needed to be a spirit-led church. Then we saw that the church was immediately thrust into the current culture of their time and that we needed to also be a church that engages our current culture. And then the third dynamic of the early church was that that they were evangelistic. They were a church that was willing at any moment, at any time, to take the opportunity posed in front of them to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when a crowd had gathered to inquire about what was happening there on the uh, day of Pentecost and the arrival of the Holy Spirit, Peter then answered their question thoroughly and brought them to the reality that what they were seeing was the arrival of the Holy Spirit promised by Jesus Christ that once he ascended to the throne 
the right hand of God, he would send the Spirit to them, and now they are seeing and hearing this arrival for themselves. Bringing them to the place where they now understand and consider that just the individual that they had 50 days earlier just had crucified, it is him that God has now demonstrated is their true Messiah. And Peter wants them to know that they are guilty of having their own Messiah rejected and killed. And now they stand before a living God a resurrected Messiah who is now at the right hand of the throne of God and now they are each and every one of them accountable to Him and will stand before Him and in their current and present condition they stand before Him as guilty as can be. So in this evangelistic sermon of Peter we found that first and foremost he lays the context and builds the big picture. Then secondly, he comes immediately to the person of Jesus Christ, all that Christ has said and done and is about to do. Last week, we looked at what it means for us as believers to have an exalted Christ. And I would encourage you to go back and to listen to that message for yourself, because I believe God wanted us to be reminded of the fact that we serve a living God, rather one that is dead. And now we come to that all-important portion of the sermon, the invitation. God is moving. The Spirit is moving. The individuals are gathered there around the apostles, and they are waiting in bated breath and anticipation for what is about to happen next. The Spirit is not only working through the words in which He is giving Peter to say, but also in the hearts of the individuals that are listening to what Peter is saying. And the last portion of the evangelistic sermon is the invitation. Seeing God working in the magnificent way in which God is, Peter then brings them to a point of decision. He doesn't leave it open-ended. He addresses their question that is based upon their conviction, what may we do to be saved? You and I as individual Christians... When we have an opportunity to share Christ with someone and we see that the Spirit is involved in that conversation and that the conviction of the Spirit and of the Word of God is working on that person's heart, bringing them to a point where they now realize that they stand as a sinner before a holy God, there is nothing wrong with inviting them to receive Him and to be saved. The reason I say that is because I'm amazed by how many evangelistic efforts today shy away from that ultimate question. Would you like to receive Christ and know today that you are saved? I ask the question, what is wrong with answering that question? And they will respond by saying that it's not up to us for them to make the decision, but it's up to God. By me asking them to make a decision, is me thrusting that decision upon them? No. If I've done my witnessing properly, they should know that a decision is now required. A response is the only correct course of action after being presented the gospel in a proper, effective manner. I think we miss too many opportunities. 
I think that we overlook things and we dismiss things when God may be working and God wants to ask that final question. Are you ready to repent of your sins? Are you ready to come to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Pleading with them as Peter did. I don't think there's anything wrong with giving an invitation, an appeal to the individual in whom you are sharing with. I think it is scriptural. I think that not only Peter did it, but Paul did it. The call for a decision. I think of the great D.L. Moody, one of my favorites in the American Christian history, who at first in his evangelistic endeavors would have individuals go home, consider what they heard that day, and then consider it before God and so forth. Until one Friday night, he gave this incredible evangelistic uh, sermon, told people to go home and think about it, and that night was the Chicago fire. Not knowing how many people of that evangelistic event were taken in that fire. And Moody then said he would never ever leave an evangelistic opportunity open-ended again due to that experience. Tomorrow is promised to no one. Today is the day of salvation. So ask the question. And it's interesting because not only does Peter answer the question once, he comes at it from a multiplicity of different uh, positions so they really get the idea that now is the time that they need to make a decision. They stand guilty before a holy God. And they know that their life is on the line. They themselves were possibly individuals in the crowd before the crucifixion of Christ, crying the name of Barabbas, now realizing that the other one that was up there was their own Messiah, their own King, God Himself. And that God remembers and knows those words in which they cried. Now, you and I were not physically involved in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, but as a result of the crucifixion, we understand that it was our sins that brought Him to that point. So we are equally guilty before a holy God, before a holy God of the crucifixion of Christ. It was his crucifixion that was necessary for us to be brought back into a relationship with God once again. But let us notice that in verse 33, as Peter now says, this Jesus, who God raised up, is now being exalted at the right hand of God. And now having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit that has been poured out, this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And so experientially, the arrival of the Holy Spirit is confirmation that Jesus Christ was exactly who He said He was. But then Peter takes them to the Scriptures. For David did not ascend into into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord shall say to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Peter is saying that this has now occurred. Jesus Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension has placed him now at the right hand of God. He is now there in a position where the the rebellion against God is now being put under his authority, his footstool. That's what that meant his authority. And as man continues to rebel against God, 
they are now ultimately accountable to Jesus Christ himself, who God said would be the one that would judge the living and the dead. And Peter is making that argument. It wasn't David who ascended to this position, the psalmist in whom wrote this. It is speaking of Jesus. The Lord said to my Lord, how can you have that? It sounds like a contradictory terms. But what he is saying is this, that the one who sat down next to God the Father was God himself. And that person was Jesus Christ. And remember from our time back in 2.21, Acts 2.21, Peter left it with a cliffhanger by saying, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The anticipation was then, what is the name of the Lord? In verse 22, he says, it is Jesus. Now, this Jesus, after the arrival of the Holy Spirit, oh, by the way, you just saw that. That's what he's saying. You just heard it. That's what just happened. He is now at the right hand of God the Father while his enemies are being placed as his footstool and all things are being placed under his authority. Now, as we come to this point, it's important for us to understand the redemptive process. If you turn with me to Psalm chapter 110, I'll have it on the screen behind you also. It's interesting that Peter did not go into verse 2. For verse 1 was certainly the beginning of the process, but there is a finality to the process that will yet be experienced by this world. Verse 2 states, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. When Christ returns, Revelation 19, after his return, the millennial kingdom will begin. Revelation 20, 1,000 years. I believe it is a thousand year period of time because it states, I believe, there are six times a thousand years. From that millennial kingdom, we know that Christ will reign from the throne in Jerusalem physically and bodily for 1,000 years. You may be asking, well, what are we doing at this time that Christ is reigning from, from Jerusalem? We are reigning with him in this millennial kingdom where he will rule in the midst of his enemies. For there will be those who come out of the tribulation period and enter into the millennial kingdom who are not saved and still have been affected by the effects of sin. And those will go into the millennial period and out of those they will be subjected themselves physically to the rule of Christ. And it's at that point that he will rule his enemies that are in his mists. So what happened here at the cross was the beginning of that process. As things begin to unfold and then will climax in his second coming, and then the, the reign of Christ will take place after he establishes himself here on this earth for a thousand years. And during that thousand year period of time, Christ will reign, Satan will be bound to be loosed at the end for one last pass across the earth so that anyone who still desires to rebel against God may do so, and then the finality comes with the lake of fire and so forth. Fascinating time. Peter says, this is the beginning of all of this. 
we are 2,000 years closer to the return of Jesus Christ than we ever have been before. And as a result, things are getting more difficult in this current age in which we live. And yet we are seeing in the darkness of our world the dawning of a kingdom that is still yet to come. And Peter says, now you are here. It is decision time. The apostles operated under the understanding that Christ could return at any moment. I do not believe that they were aware of the fact that 2,000 years would pass in this time that Romans calls the time of the Gentiles. The time where God turns his attention from rejecting Israel onto the Gentile world. We are grafted into the vine And at the end of that time, when the fullness of the Gentiles is complete, when the very last individual that God has set apart is saved, he will then take his church home and return his attention once again to Israel for that final seven-year period of judgment spoken about in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27 and 24. But Peter is saying this is all happening before us. And notice the urgency that is before us. Verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know that we're knowing the Greek is an imperative. It's a command. You must realize how you stand before this risen Christ. You must accept and believe your position before Him. That's what he's saying here. You must know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ This Jesus whom you crucified. You can tell that the Bible was written in a portion of time where political correctness had not yet been invented. Peter didn't hold any punishes back at this point. It was too urgent. His countrymen were on the verge of death before a holy God. They had crucified their Messiah. And he is now saying before all of them, you must understand where you stand before this holy God. You must know for certain that God the Father has made him both Lord and Christ. There's no ambiguity anymore. This is it. No time for doubt anymore. This is it. And you are accountable to him. That's what he's saying here. There's an urgency. There is a warning that are found in these words and in those three words Jesus I should say for in whom you crucified the element of conviction is now beginning to penetrate the hearts of the individuals listening to what is being said in verse 37 we see their reaction now when they heard this they were cut to the heart. It means being stabbed with a knife. It means being brought to the point of guiltiness that they understand before a holy God that they stand in complete and utter condemnation. There's a fear that is gripping their hearts at this time to even consider the reality that the one in whom they just had crucified was their own God. It puts things in perspective. As one wrote, he said it came to be used, this term, to express deep anxiety and profound regret. 
This is the only time that the word is used in the New Testament. Today we would talk about this word in the sense of conviction. What does it mean for an individual to feel the weight of conviction upon their soul and heart? Well, conviction means just that. You have been found guilty before a holy God. That conviction is your conscience telling you and confirming what is being said to you. And a conviction is not merely a charge. A charge is uh, basically saying, I have this charge against you, but you could be either innocent or guilty. Conviction is you are guilty. There's no ands, buts about it. You are guilty before God. And that's what they're feeling here in their hearts and in their minds. This weight of conviction like never before. And they are now anxious. They're being torn up inside over the guilt that they now have before a holy God. This guilt is meant to lead them to Christ and not keep them from Christ. The word that is used here is multifaceted. And when we talk about conviction, we can look at it from many different um, perspectives and get a different flavor of the, wor- of the word. Conviction can also mean, if it's it used, in, for example, in the Gospel of John, it is used in a manner in which someone is cross-examining you. Say you're on a witness stand and you've been asked the question by an attorney, are you guilty of this crime? And you say no to try to justify yourself, to try to uh, escape the guilty uh, verdict. This issue of conviction would be the prosecuting attorney coming up and cross-examining you. You've seen it undoubtedly in the numerous court shows that we have on TV. If you've ever watched Perry Mason, you've seen this a hundred times. If you don't know who Perry Mason is, ask your parents. If you don't know who Perry Mason is, I am really old. But it's, think of it this way. You have just openly admitted before court that you are not guilty. You've never committed that particular crime, knowing full well that you have. And all of a sudden, the prosecuting attorney comes to you, starts asking you some questions, and has pictures of you doing it. How do you feel then? Not only are you guilty of the original crime, but now you're guilty of perjury. That's the weight of conviction. It's like a cross-examinator coming at you with the evidence of your guilt. And so the picture I see is this, as we try to justify our sins before God, rationally dismiss them, rationalize them away, I should say. When we start comparing ourselves with other people and then thinking to ourselves, well, we're better than they are, so I must be okay before God. The weight of the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes as a cross-examiner and asks us, but wait, are you sure you didn't do that? No, I never did. Are you sure? I have the pictures right here. Here it is. Here's the evidence, judge. Here's the evidence, jury. Right here. Now you're lying. But in that case, who are you actually lying to? Well, first and foremost, you're lying to God. And secondly, you're lying to yourself. Today in our culture, have you noticed the masterful way in which Satan has worked in our culture? 
Now think about this for a moment. Conviction, having a sense of guilt, having a sense of fear because that guilt is now uh, possibly determining that I'm going to suffer consequences from the wrong in which I committed. How do we alleviate people from this guilt, this condemnation? Because one writer wrote this, that no soul will ever experience rest until the issue of sin is dealt with before God. I agree with that 100%. But what about the world? How do we alleviate the people's conscience before God from a worldly perspective? Well, we take away the understanding of sin. And isn't it interesting that almost nothing is sin any longer? Isn't it interesting today people are very reluctant to take responsibility for their own personal actions. It's always someone else's fault for what they have done. Today, instead of an individual being guilty of sin, we say they're simply victim of their circumstances. We have diminished all of the um, concern and guilt that would be rendered from sinning before a holy God. And as long as society is acceptable of those practices, then why not practice them? Because it is only society in whom you are accountable to. Is that true? No way. But that's the way we've made it today, isn't it? So when we talk about sin, often people don't seem to react in that same conviction any longer because they don't see that it is sin any longer. And Satan has masterfully moved us away from this understanding of conviction, of guilt, of condemnation. All individuals apart from Christ are under the weight of the wrath of God. There's no getting around that. The Bible is clear on that. They are condemned before a holy God for their sin within their life. That sin must be dealt with through the person of Christ. That's the only manner in which it can be dealt with. There is no other substitute for dealing with that sin. It can only be dealt through Christ. Now, as a believer in Jesus Christ, guess what? There is no more condemnation reigning over our heads. Why? Because everything has been dealt with in the person of Jesus Christ. Not only did he wash us clean of our sins, he also imputed unto us his own righteousness that we may be perfect before God the Father. And so therefore there is no condemnation before God. And when Satan or the world tried to condemn us for our actions, it is at that moment that our advocate Christ steps into the uh, conversation and says, they're in me and I am before them, before you. And so the Father looking at us through Christ sees us perfected in Christ. And there's no condemnation. God never uses condemnation in the life of the believer to correct or chasten one's action. He always uses conviction. Condemnation in the life of the believer will drive the believer away from God and often is the first choice of Satan. Condemning a believer in Jesus Christ, Satan is a master at to separate them from the body of Christ, to really get on them for blowing it, for uh, failing, for uh, doing something incorrectly, thinking that they can never go back. I'm not good enough. I'm not perfect enough. I I can never go back. That's not the way God works. That's the way Satan works. 
God uses conviction. God chastens us as a loving parent chastens a child, corrects a child. Conviction from that point of view always draws us back to God. And please, if you need an illustration to help you truly digest all of this, think of the father of the prodigal son who was waiting for his son to return. And when he saw his son returning from one of the most horrendous and heinous acts of rebellion, the father ran to the son, embraced him, put a robe on him, put uh, shoes on his feet and a ring on his finger. That's the way God waits and anticipates for us to come back when we have blown it. The door is always open for us to return. It is never closed. But for these individuals, they were under the weight of incredible, incredible conviction. As one wrote, he says, so mighty was the convicting power of the Holy Spirit that there was an immediate response from the audience. Without any invitation or appeal from Peter, they cried out, what shall we do? The question was prompted by a deep sense of guilt, he writes. Now they realize that Jesus was whom he said he was, and he was slain and was God's beloved son. This Jesus had been raised from the dead and was now exalted in heaven. This being so, how could these guilty murderers possibly escape judgment. Now when we think about this convicting of God, let us know that it is not our job to do the convicting. God sent his Holy Spirit into the world to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. But when we are sharing the gospel with someone, when we are praying for an individual who does not know the Lord, understand that the Spirit is working in conjunction with what we are doing, and it is He who brings about this conviction. It is He that renders them guilty before a holy God. Of sin because of their rejection of Christ. Of righteousness that they may know that the only righteous standard before God that will be accepted in His presence is that of perfection and only Christ was perfect. Of judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. So when I pray for someone to come to Christ and I ask the Spirit to convict them of sin, of righteousness, of judgment, I'm already asking Him to do what He has been sent to do by God. That's why when I enter into evangelistic opportunities and sharing the the, the gospel with someone, I know I'm never alone in the process. God is always with me. And he's already working behind the scenes. So they asked Peter, very clearly in verse 37, now when they had heard this, they were cut to their heart. The conviction was so heavy The weight of their guilt before them was unbearable. They knew they were guilty and nobody had to explain it any further to them. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And this is why I say to you that when you are witnessing and you're seeing the Spirit work in their life, you're seeing that their continence is changing before you, Take the opportunity to tell them how they can be saved and give them an opportunity to do so right then and there. If they are still rebellious after your presentation, then you need to go at it a little bit more with them, maybe. Maybe they have some questions that are are posing resistance to their 
belief in Jesus Christ. Maybe you need to work through those questions. But when you get to that point in the conversation, in the duration of your conversations with them, please know and understand, take advantage of that opportunity before you. Walk through that open door. They made it perfectly clear here. Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, number one, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the first time now that Peter is explaining to one how they can get right with God. And first and foremost, he tells them to repent. It means to change your direction, to turn from the direction in which you're going to make a 180 degree turn. It means to be openly responsible and accountable for your personal sins before God, meaning you're taking ownership of those sins that you know you have committed before a holy God and that you are saying, Lord, I don't want to do this any longer. Repentance is so much more than simple remorse. Remorse is simply the attitude of, man, I got caught. Repentance is the point of conviction where it changes a person's mind and heart saying, I don't want to continue in this manner any longer. Because one who is carried by remorse or feels remorse is basically saying, I've gotten caught and and now I'm accountable to that. And uh, man, I wish I would have never gotten caught, but I have no real desire to change. And as soon as I'm done being grounded, I'm going to go out and do the same thing again. I was a teenager. I did that all the time. That's not what God is looking for. He's not looking for remorse. He's looking for repentance where the weight of conviction is so strong that we cannot simply continue in our actions and life any longer. Daryl Bach, he, has a, a, he did a brilliant work on the book of Acts, and he stated that this repentance is like a two-sided coin. It's repentance on one side and faith in Christ in the other. The realization of our sins comes through the light of knowing who Christ is and our standing before him. So if we are willing to repent in this manner, we are also saying we are willing to believe in who Christ is. And so I found that very interesting and I thought I would share that with you this morning. But then Peter says something that has truly became one of the most controversial salvation verses of the Bible. And that is, he says, repent and be baptized. And individuals take this verse to support a doctrine called baptismal regeneration, meaning you must be baptized before you can be saved. Now, is that statement consistent with New Testament theology? Yes or no? No, it's not. We have too many examples where baptism is not included in the invitation, not included in the salvatic process. And therefore, we cannot say that he is saying that baptism here is necessary. But what is he exactly saying? And this is where my brothers and sisters who believe in baptismal regeneration stop their argument. Peter is saying that they must be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, historically, let us understand that the only individuals in the Jewish society that were ever baptized were those Gentile proselytes who came to Christ, came to Judaism, and then were baptized into Judaism. 
Now Peter is telling them, you need to repent and you need to go be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. The implication of faith is found there, I believe, within those two words. But what he is saying is being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. You are officially identifying yourself with the risen Christ. Now think about that. For them to get saved and then immediately to be baptized before all the Jewish people who had just rejected Jesus Christ as their Messiah. This was a very open proclamation of their faith and devotion and allegiance to Christ. For a Jewish person to demonstrate their Judaism, what did a man need to reveal? It's not the most pleasant thought. That he was circumcised on the eighth day. I'll just leave it at that. Now, Peter is saying, and you'll see that circumcision means nothing going forward in the New Testament. Now he is saying, you must identify yourself with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Now, just to help you see that baptism is not included in other verses, including one that Peter states in Acts chapter 3, to demonstrate that we believe baptism is a sacrament that is participated in after one is saved. So first you get saved, and then you are baptized to demonstrate your, your allegiance to Christ before those that you want to proclaim it before. Baptism doesn't save anyone. Think of this with me, the thief on the cross. Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. But first, we have to get down off the cross. I have to sprinkle you, and then we have to get back on the cross and die. Then you can be in paradise with me. If your Bible says that, please return it, okay? It's a perfect example where baptism was not required. But let me give you some verses to help you along with this. Uh, Luke 24, 46 and 47. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in the name, in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. No mention of baptism whatsoever. Peter in Acts 3, same speaker, same book, next chapter, verse 19. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that the time of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the, the Christ appointed to, uh, for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring of all things about which God spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. No mention of baptism. Acts 10, 43. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. No mention of baptism. Acts 13, 38 and 39. Let it be known to you therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. What's not mentioned? Baptism. Acts 26, 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from the darkness to the light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and, and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. 
Repentance and faith. Repent and believe. Those are the requirements for being saved. Repent and believe on Jesus Christ. Being baptized afterwards as a demonstration of your allegiance to Jesus Christ, identifying you with him in the death, burial, and resurrection. So this is what Peter was getting at. Again, I wanted to bring that to your attention because there are those, again, who are strong proponents of the idea of baptismal regeneration, and I wanted to explain to you why we do not uh, hold to that doctrinal tradition. And so in verse 38, And Peter said to them, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, that you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you. Look at these words with me. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Peter is making it clear that the gospel here that is being shared will be the gospel that will go out throughout the entire world. The presentation here by Peter is a little different because he's speaking to Jewish people who have a foundation in Judaism and understand some fundamental things in which Peter is speaking of. But when Paul addresses the Gentile churches who do not have that background, that history, that heritage, that tradition, he uses the same manner in sharing the gospel, speaking of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, and believing by faith in him for the forgiveness of sins. But again here, in my evangelistic endeavors, I see here that this invitation is meant for all. It is not limited. Peter speaks of those who are afar off. I believe he's thinking of the Gentiles at this point. Knowing that it was going to go far beyond Jerusalem and Judea and to the uttermost parts of the world, it was going to go from this moment on. This message was going to transform those who would believe in the world. I believe that our gospel presentations should be offered to anyone who will listen. Without hesitation, without reluctance, we should share it with everyone. And whomsoever shall believe on the Lord shall be saved. But as he gives this promise, he's inviting you and I now to take this good word into all of the world to those who are afar off anyone and whom the Lord our God calls to himself with many other words he was bore witness and continued to exhort them saying save yourself from this crooked generation as Luke seems to have summarized Peter's message for us it appears at the very end that Peter was given uh, every opportunity for those individuals to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Meaning that once he gave the first appeal, he then made a second and a third. That's what that word exhortation means there. It means to earnestly request, plea, or appeal to. Basically saying, don't pass up on this moment. This is your appointment with God. Exhorting them in this manner. And he says, save yourself. Turn 
from this world to Christ. Save yourself, he says. It is in your court. Make the decision for Christ. Turn to him, repent of your sins, and believe on him for everlasting life. As one wrote, he said, the important thing to notice is that the promise is not only to you and to your children, but to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. It is an inclusive as the whosoever of the gospel invitation. I never determine if anyone is unworthy of hearing the gospel. If anyone will give me that opportunity to share the gospel with them, I'm going to take advantage of it. I don't care how many times I've done it before. If they'll give me a, a, a fifth, sixth, eighth, tenth, hundredth opportunity, I'll take it. Because I don't know what the Lord may be doing and wanting to do in and through them. But he says, save yourself. It's in your court. So notice in verse 41. He calls it a crooked generation. I love this word crooked. Let me just give you one more thing before you leave. The word crooked there means refracted. Uh, It means you're looking at something through a, a a refracted glass and it's being twisted and distorted before you. What he's saying here is that the generation, this time in which we are occupying, is so distorted. Meaning it's not what God originally intended that his Christ will restore at his second coming. But he says, be saved from this crooked, perverse, refracted, fragmented, broken society and culture. Get out of it. Save yourself. Get in the boat and be saved. And that's what he is moving towards. But look at verse 41 as we close. So those who received his word were baptized. They identified themselves in Christ. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. How's that for a church growth program? And when you look at it, it's like, how could this have ever been orchestrated if it weren't for the hand of God orchestrating it himself? This is what happens when you let the Spirit move in the manner in which He desires to move. Now, the apostles were faced with a problem, weren't they? Because in the upper room, they had snacks and coffee for 120 people. They had the Sunday school rooms for 120 people. The nursery was set up for four children. And now in one day, the church has gone from 120 there in the upper room to over, well, 3,120. You know, that's exactly how many we got now. What do you do with all those people? Well, it's a nice problem to have. And next week, we're going to see exactly what the apostles did with those 3,100 people. And in our next couple of sessions together, we are going to talk a little bit more practically and personally about our church. At the 20-year mark, I do feel that we as a church are at some crossroads that we need to discuss as a congregation. I do feel that we need to think about some potential pitfalls that we may fall into if we are not careful as a church at this point in our existence. And those are brought out as we look at the different activities in which the new church found themselves within. 
And it's incredible. The next few verses are so simplistic, but they are so profound in the exact same manner. And the totality of the church, the existence of what now they do day by day by day, week after week, is now being exampled for us in these next set of verses. And again, I say that some of these things we must consider for ourselves today if we want to continue to be a healthy church. Now, I will say to you, I am concerned that it appears that many Christians no longer have any desire to share their faith with others. For one reason or another, they just don't feel that they want to or are willing to share their faith with another. That troubles me greatly. Because someone took a risk with me over 30 years ago. And because they took that risk with me, I am now here with you today. And my life is like nothing I've ever anticipated or expected it to be. Everything I have now is a result of my faith in Jesus Christ. And why aren't we willing to take that same risk in relationships that we have with others to share Christ with them? Is it that we don't long, do we no longer believe that if they die in their sins, that they will die apart from Christ and therefore have to stand before God in their own righteousness only to discover that that righteousness is nothing but filthy rags before a holy God and they end up in an eternity of hell? Okay, does that concern you for those you love and your friends and family? It concerns me greatly. That's the reality of the, of the Christian faith. Are we under the misconception, well, God is a God of love, and at the end, he's just going to accept everybody in anyway. So what's the point of me sharing my faith? Nowhere does the scripture support that idea. That's called universal salvation. Nowhere does God support that. It's those who make the decision for Christ now, here and now. Do we believe it's only for the professionals? Thank God it wasn't a professional who explained the gospel to me when I was 16. I never would have understood it. Thank God it was an old biker, tattoo sleeves. He got tattoo sleeves back in the 70s. Grabbed me by my collar and put me up against the door of his garage and says, you need Christ. How's that for an evangelistic uh, methodology? I thought for sure that the moment I accepted Christ there, he was going to kill me so I didn't backslide. <laughs> That's what he did. I remember looking at I never saw a man's eyes like that before. That's why I repented. It's like, oh, I'm sorry, God. You know. He did. He grabbed me by my shirt collar, took me and put me up against the door. And he says, son, you need Jesus right now. I knew he was going to kill me. He just wanted me to be saved first. But he took a risk with me. He took a risk. And I found out later it was because he loved me. And when I became a Christian, he was the first one always there encouraging me in my newfound faith. So why are we so reluctant today? I don't know enough. Listen, you know your story. You know how you became a Christian. You, need, you have all the information you need. Tell it that simply. Let's not make it so complex. Let's just make it as simple as the blind man who was healed from his blindness. And when the religious leaders asked him what had happened, he said, Jesus healed me. I was blind and now I can see. That's all I know, but Jesus did it. Point to God in that kind of simplicity. I agree that if we're not willing to evangelize, we're going to fossilize. 
I got, and I'm going to say one last thing because you guys got me all fired up now. I, I'm probably as red as the carpet. Church growth is not Christians leaving one church to go to another church. Okay? The vast majority of church growth that is being measured in churches today are coming from individual Christians leaving one church for another church and then that church saying we're growing exponentially and here's why. That's not church growth. You know what church growth is? When you leave and you come back with two others who that week didn't know the Lord and now they do. That's church growth. I like the way Luke writes church growth. That the Lord added on to them those that were being saved, about 3,000. That's what church growth is. If we want to grow as a church, let's go out fishing. Let's go proclaim the gospel and see what God will do. And then let's see our church grow that way. And if it's just a few at a time, praise the Lord for it because that's actual church growth. Do you realize that those people have come out of darkness, they're into light, they've come out of death, they've come into life? That's church growth. Please do not be afraid to share your faith. You've got the best news that anyone could ever, ever have, and you have the cure to the number one thing killing all people in our world today, and that is sin. Share it. Go out on a limb. Risk the relationship. Because you know what I'm finding? People are wanting to know the truth today. Even if they react at you negatively initially, let them react that way. But they will come back to you. And they will say, thank you for sharing the truth with me. I can't tell you how many times that has happened in my life. Take a, a risk. Because you know what hangs in the balance. You know what hangs in the balance. If they get saved or not, that's up to God, right? Let's just be about our Father's business, sharing the good news with whoever will listen and leave the results up to God. I'm not putting that on your shoulders. I'm not saying that their blood is going to be on your hands. The blood of them is on the hands of Christ already. Let us just share the good news and let's be an evangelistic church 